At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. A playlist original. Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy, you know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. And I'm Liv. So this is part two of our series on the allegations against Gian Gameshi. Last episode, to give a brief recap, though if you haven't heard it already, please go back and listen to that one first because it gives some very important context to this episode. And so in our first episode, we talked about his time at CBC, the allegations that were alleged, the star investigation, and of course the criminal charges that had been laid on Gameshi. So now in episode two, we are going to take on those allegations head on, dealing with different parts of the trial including talking about the lawyer who represented him, Marie Hennen, the various issues with the trial, and some subsequent reactions from the public. We should start by saying the demise of Gameshi also led to the rise of an uproar on Twitter. The public is growing increasingly critical and upset about the allegations that have been alleged against Gameshi. Of course, with any great outrage also comes the voices on the other side who do support him. And so the mood of the public is very much attentive. People are watching And this trial is at the forefront of the media and the forefront of people's conversations day to day and online. And so that that's just some some context to give you going into this trial. And so Gameshi hires a high profile criminal defense lawyer in Toronto, Marie Hennen. Katie, can you start us off by telling people who maybe don't know about her? A little bit about her. Marie Hennon is a high-profile Toronto criminal lawyer. She was very highly regarded in the criminal defense bar before this, but certainly this trial has definitely catapulted. Yeah, has catapulted her profile. She's become a bit, a bit famous in her own right. Before hiring her, she she was still highly sought out before Gameshi hired her. Her most famous client was Michael Bryant, who was the attorney general for Ontario. While he was driving, he was charged with dangerous driving and criminal negligence causing death after he had an encounter with bike courier who ended up dying. Um, Bryant talked about working with her and 
compares their meeting compared their meetings to a boot camp. He mm. says, quote, if she thought I was being morose or lethargic, she had zero sympathy. He said at a key moment in the case, she pulled him aside and said, I'm your lawyer, not your fucking therapist. <laughs> wow. I have major respect for her for saying that. He pulls no punches. After the so during the trial, she got a lot of attention, not for being this high profile, even, you know, codedly sexist, tough lawyer. She got attention for her a lot of attention for her appearance. Do we want to talk about that coverage? Sure. I don't know if there's a lot I don't know if there's a lot to say. I think it's like every famous female lawyer in history gets criticized on how they wear their hair and how they dress. Uh, I think I have a quote from Ann Kingston, but donning exquisitely crafted suede shoes in February, black and teal, as well as patchwork gray, black and burgundy, as Hedden has done throughout the Gomeshi trial, it sends an even more rarefied version of that message. Quote, my feet are unacquainted with slushy pavement. It says, I have a driver. So this was, there's, there's many column inches devoted to her uh, how she dressed, her hair, how her uh, the associate that was the second chair, how she dressed, and how all three of them dressed when they were walking together. A lot of attention was given to how she was put together, which many were quick to call out as sexist, and then <laughs> some of the ones who called it out as sexist subsequently did the same thing in the article. I was amazed at how much of this coverage I read was written by women to... How many column inches were dedicated to her shoes alone? But there was a lot. I mean, as if the male Bay Street litigators aren't wearing, you know, multiple thousand dollar shoes and suits. I mean, I'm, I have no doubt they are. But it just, it's kind of interesting in this trial, which is about like sexual assault and largely violence against women. There's all this, you know, sexism against his lawyer and politicizing her clothing. There's a bit of a, sick hypocrisy to it i think and of course what she became famous for throughout the course of the trial was her cross-examinations of the complainants during which she really completely undermined the credibility of the complainants and problematized a lot of their previous testimony it's hard to say how quote, vicious or not her cross-examinations were. I mean, we didn't pull the court transcripts of this episode because we're we're trying to put this in the context of, you know, Canadian culture and, and not make this too much of a law podcast, but most of the information that the public has is from, um, you know, the media coverage. A lot of the journalists were live tweeting it. And thankfully, we don't have court TV in this country. So unless you were there, it's hard to know. It's hard to know how... Un- unnecessarily vicious her cross-examination was if it even was i think i'll put on the record that several of the complainants seem to find it unfair and demeaning and demoralizing but i will also say that as somebody who took trial ad the purpose of cross-examination is to call into question the evidence uh, the part of that is addressing the credibility of the person giving evidence i mean that is that is every cost examination from car accident to murder. Yeah. So in terms of whether she was unfair to them, I don't know. I think that you feel differently about this than I do, but I, I don't, I don't know. For sure. I think that it's difficult to take 
the complainants at their word for how difficult a cross-examination was if you haven't been subsequently or previously cross-examined by any other lawyer, right? I think, I don't think a ton of people coming out of a cross-examination and under any circumstances would say that the experience was a positive one. It is known for being difficult to go through and that's why different lawyers have to prepare their clients so viciously in order to go through it because everybody knows how difficult it can be. The other thing I'll say really briefly is that you know two of the three complainants in this case had their own lawyers, which is becoming more and more the norm that uh, complainants in sexual assault cases had their own lawyers because as we know, the prosecutor is not your lawyer when you are a complainant. The third complainant had a lawyer work on a third party records application, but she didn't have a lawyer she was meeting with regularly who was coaching her on or she didn't have a lawyer she was meeting with regularly who was helping her prep for trial. There's been some speculation and I think some scholars that I respect certainly have have told the media that they probably weren't properly prepared by their lawyers and it's it's really hard to know. But I think that part of the difficulty that they had faced on their cross-examination was the fact that they hadn't disclosed certain information. There was just facts that came up that were particularly difficult to deal with on cross-examination. And so I think that that was what made their particular experiences on the stands very bad. You know, there if it had been a, a more standard cross-examination where there wasn't all this baggage that came up I, I think we all we might have just viewed the whole thing differently I think I want to I just want to disagree just a little bit slightly because I don't think the only reason that the cross-examination was so harrowing for these complainants was because of their own failures to disclose I think that obviously no, that sorry, kind of that, and that's not what I wanted to, that's not what I was trying to suggest I know I just want to add that I think that's certainly part of it and there was Unlike most trials, which don't unfold like TV, right? Like, especially in civil trials, you have to disclose everything to the other side. Criminal trials are different because the defense doesn't have to disclose evidence. Um, but in this case, there was a lot more, quote, surprise evidence than you see in most trials ever, right? Because some of this information, mostly regarding post-incident contact by the complainants, was not disclosed to the police or to the Crown or to the media, which formed a lot of the, some of the base of evidence uh, in this trial. I think in addition to that being part of why it was so harrowing, because they had this, you know, these emails from 10 years ago thrown in their faces, was I do think that part of what Marie Hennon was criticized for, which might be, which might be fair criticism, was like the fact that she seems to be peddling in in some of the rape myths that we've been talking about, especially in some in some rape myths, like how, like the shock that they were talking to him after the assaults, which we, which as we'll get into, we know that it's very common for um, it, it's actually very common for victims to uh, contact their abusers and, and reach out to them and even continue relationships with them. That is not unusual or quote odd as the judge puts it but we'll go we'll get into that later but i think that whether marie hedden had a right to do that is a different question i think it's well how should the law be adapted to rule out certain rape myths like we've done with uh, rape shield laws which require you to apply to the court if you want to induce any evidence of the complainant's past sexual history like like should the law be changed because 
Marie Hennon's job is to be the fiercest advocate for her client within the roles that she can be, right? That is her job. And the rules certainly allowed her to ask those questions. And, and maybe that's the problem. I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe, maybe it's immoral for Marie Hennon to ask great, maybe it's immoral for Marie Hennon to ask great mythy questions while claiming to be a feminist. I don't really think I want to decide that, whether I want to decide that. But I, I do think that maybe it's a more interesting question whether the law should respond to the way that defense lawyers are still able to ask rape mythy questions. And maybe sometimes those rape mythy questions are probative, right? That's the, that's the argument. I think that a lot of people did accuse, did fall on this side where they felt that uh, Marie Hennon had crossed the line and they accused her of betraying her gender. And this was a theme that was common in in the the media coverage of Marie Hennon. And this particular allegation was something that she hit head on in her interview with Peter Mansbridge on The National. And her position on the subject was was basically that is that she doesn't feel as though she's betraying her sex and what what her role is and she believes that her role is to be a zealous advocate in the administration of justice that every person who is accused should be entitled to the same zealous representation and she feels that she is an important part of maintaining the administration of justice not that she is on some kind of moral battle to def- to defend men who are accused of sexual assault and i think to be fair to her her track record backs that up i think that's the difference between marie hennen and, and some of the critiques that we've read about you know donna brazil who was harvey weinstein's lawyer like donna brazil has made her career of defending men who were accused of sexual assault and harassment like she is the sexual assault and harassment defense lawyer and she has chosen a life where she falls down on this side she has chosen to make her career out of that and she is also in media interviews like she is also political about it she talks about how she thinks it's too easy for women to just accuse men and she thinks that there's something fundamentally unfair about the way the system works i think that Marie Hennon is not an activist for men who, who are accused of sexual assault and harassment. She's just the top paid, not just, because you can still think it's wrong for her to defend, for her to defend someone like this. And I think that's, people are entitled to believe that. But I would say she's just like the best criminal lawyer in Toronto, you know, or one of them. I think that's her. It seems, yeah, I th- it seems that she's not going to discriminate against any person who walks into her office. If you can afford her, she will probably defend you. Which most of you can't. If you're listening to this, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) So moving on to the substance of the complaints, Giangameshi is charged during this first trial with five criminal offenses relating to four separate events and involving three different complainants. Now, two of the complainants during the course of the trial remained anonymous, known only as their initials, and we did have one of them who revealed her identity prior to the trial, and so is identified by her name. 
So let's talk briefly about the offenses. I think that's something that's taken for granted in a lot of the media that the Canadian public knows what sexual assault is. I don't necessarily think that the public does. So when we think of the criminal offenses, lawyers, and like in law school, when you're learning about criminal offenses, you learn to break things down into elements. So I'll break down the elements of the offense in this section. So it's easy to explain sexual assault by first referring to assault. So a criminal assault is the intentional application of force to the person without that person's consent in the absence of consent. So a sexual assault is all of that. It's an assault as defined in the context of sexuality in sexual circumstances, such the sexual integrity of the victim is violated. And this is determined by what we call an objective test. The test asks whether the fact that this happened in in the context of sexuality would be apparent to, quote, a reasonable person in light of all the circumstances. So part of how we understand this is the actual intent of the accused, but that's only one factor in when when you're determining whether the conduct is sexual. And I wanted to highlight this because this, this does become important in the trial, whether what we're talking about is something that's truly sexual or something that's an assault. If it's, whether it's a sexual assault or an assault. And that's why some of the evidence that we'll talk about what, why it tends to matter whether there was kissing before the violence or after. Uh, sexual assault is a, a broad spectrum of, of activity. It ranges from unwanted sexual touching to you know the most brutal attack you can imagine. But all of these have to occur in the context of sexuality, in sexual so-called sexual circumstances. So in this case, four of the charges are sexual assault. And then we have a fifth charge that's something else that I had never heard of until researching this podcast. And the fifth charge is choking with the intent to overcome resistance. Now this is, this offense occurs when the accused attempts to choke the victim with the intent of facilitating the commission of an, of an offense. In this case, he is charged with choking a victim with the intent of trying to commit a sexual assault. So that's those are the offenses that we're working with. Okay, now that I'm saying this, I'm thinking that we should start this by talking about evidence generally. In a trial, the trier of fact, which in this case is a judge. So this was a judge alone trial, not a jury trial. If it's a jury trial, the jury is a trier of fact. In a judge alone trial, the judge's job is to, quote, weigh the evidence. So it's not like the judge hears every piece of evidence and just, you know, has a checklist of what's true and what's false, what's right and what's a lie. What the judge does is for the evidence that has been successfully admitted in the trial, whatever's on the record, the judge looks at that evidence and the judge assigns certain weights to that evidence. And that's often based on either the credibility of the evidence itself or um, the credibility of the person given the evidence. So in sexual assault trials, most of the evidence comes from the people, you know, in the room at the time of the assault, which overwhelmingly is usually two people or the people who were involved in the violence. So in the case like this, where the defendant does not take the stand, so Gameshi does not himself give testimony, almost all of the evidence that the judge has to work with is the testimony of the complainants. So what the judge is going to do in his decision, if you read it, 
is go through the evidence and assign weights to what they've said. So if a witness has demonstrated themselves not to be credible, it's really hard or to have deceived the court. It's hard for the judge to take any of the evidence. The judge might not take much of their evidence as credible at all, or they might assign different weights to parts of the evidence based on, based on how clear their memory is. So you can see how in cases like this, it's not just, you know, how good your memory is, whether you're actually telling the truth. A lot of it is also how good of a storyteller you are, how good of a narrator you are. And that becomes even harder when there's allegations like these, which are, you know, many years and sometimes decades old. Yeah, so I think now we should just take each complainant in turn, briefly outlining their particular claim and then discussing whatever we want to discuss about them. So we have three complainants. At the time of the trial, two are anonymous and one is not. The The one that is not is Lucy Descouteres. After the trial, Linda Redgrave, who is known as LR, if you read the decision, she's called LR. She has since put her... She has since put her name to the allegation, so I'll call. We'll call her Linda Redgrave, but she will be referred to as LR if you read the decision yourself. LR has two separate sexual assaults that she's alleging. The first one is in December of 2002. The assault took place in Gameshi's car, and she alleges that Gameshi suddenly and aggressively pulled her hair. The second assault took place in January 2003. This alleged assault took place at his Gameshi's home. And the allegations are that he suddenly pulled her hair, punched her head several times, and pulled her to her knees. So over the course of the trial, there were several inconsistencies that were raised by the defense about her testimony before the trial and at the trial based on evidence that the defense also brought. We're not going to talk about all these inconsistencies, but in order to give you some context, we will highlight one. So part of Linda Redgrave's testimony was that when she met him, Gomeshi had this bright yellow beetle. And she says essentially that such a, you know, cartoonish Disney-ish car reassured him that he was a nice person, that she felt, quote, very safe with him at the moment she met him. The problem with this was that he didn't get the yellow beetle until seven months after the day in question. And the judge takes issue with this. He says, we know that this memory makes one seriously question what else might be honestly remembered by her and yet actually be equally wrong. This demonstrably false memory weighs in the balance against the general liability of LR's evidence as a whole. I think it's important to just state simply that the evidence in this case is all dependent on the credibility of the complainants. And so the fact that their credibility came into question and was was doubted so heavily, there's a good quote from the decision here to really articulate the, the issue in this case, and it's true of a lot of sexual assault cases. The judge says, one of the challenges for the cr- prosecution in this case is that the allegations against Gameshi are supported by nothing in addition to the complainant's word. There is no other evidence to look to to determine the truth. There is no tangible evidence. There is no DNA. There is no smoking gun. 
there is only the sworn evidence of each complainant standing on its own to be measured against a very exacting standard of proof. This highlights the importance of the assessment of the credibility and the reliability and the overall quality of the evidence. So I think I think that just actually really sums it up, what I'm trying to say. Another problem that the court found with her what evidence was that she had said that she was so traumatized she couldn't watch Gomeshi on television or even hear his voice, and she couldn't even listen to the new cue. But moments later, Marie Hennon brings out two emails she'd sent after the alleged assaults, and one of them had herself in a bathing suit, which every media outlet has described as a red string bikini, which I don't know why, but really bothers me. Um, like the fact that it's red and string is somehow material. And it's string. It wasn't just a bikini. Mm. It was red and it was string. How sinister. Yeah, the one thing, before we do, the one thing I just wanted to raise here is two prominent rape myths that I think are we're just kind of signposting to come back to. That inconsistencies in memory somehow undermine the complainant's credibility, which I think we want to debunk. And also that it's, quote, odd when complainants stay in contact with their assaulters, which I think we are also interested in debunking. So we'll get we'll circle back to that. Don't worry. We're going to talk about it. Okay, let's talk about Lucy de Couter. She's the second complainant. She's, at the time, the only person who put her name to her allegations. She says that she did so, so that other women would feel empowered to come forward. Can you tell us, Liv, who is Lucy de Couture? Yes. So she, she was an actor. She was in the Trailer Park Boys. She is also a captain in the military. So she alleged that Gomeshi put his hand on her throat, pushed her forcefully against the wall, choked her, and slapped her face. There was, again, issues with her testimony. She had a lot, she had given a lot of interviews to different media outlets before the trial. She had given a lot of interviews with the police. And then again, during the course of the trial, various details that she had not previously revealed were unearthed, giving the impression, despite the fact that she did say that she was planning to disclose those things once the trial began, it certainly gave the impression that she would not have revealed the information if not being forced to do so, which is what the the judge did say in the decision. And that was a particular difficulty in her credibility that it was that was difficult to explain away. The judge also takes issue with some of the inconsistencies in the evidence itself. Justice Horkin says, it's not that she doesn't remember specific details from this event from over 10 years ago, because keep in mind, this allegation is over 10 years old, but it's that she puts forward different versions. When I read that, I think, okay, Horkin, but doesn't part two follow from part one? When something is that old, is it not hard to recall it perfectly exactly in the same way? When a witness, he continues, when a witness is comfortable with giving different versions of the same event, it suggests a degree of carelessness with the truth that diminishes the general reliability of the witness. So to what we explained before, you know, there's certain, sometimes the way that the evidence is presented might make the judge to conclude that 
the weight of that evidence is diminished. But when a witness shows signs of um, maybe being deceptive or giving, not being able to, you know, give good evidence, that can also go to their general reliability as a witness. Mm -hmm. And of course it did. And that was a portion of it. But what we should also say became a huge issue and, and undermined the credibility of all the complainants was the fact that these three complainants and other women accusers who weren't involved in the trial did communicate with each other. They had been in contact. So on, so from the decision, the judge talks about a couple of instances over the course of the communications between the complainants where Lucy in particular had said things that were very problematic in their messages. So on December 9th, 2014 she told sd another complainant that she the professional actor was excited for this trial because it was going to be quote theater at its best and she continues to say quote dude with my background i literally feel like i was prepared to take this on no shit this trial does not freak me out i invite the media shit so obviously, this is a quote from the decision that the judge has picked out to be particularly memorable. We don't, I don't, we don't necessarily have the context here, but certainly it doesn't paint her in a great light. She also, we also know that she engaged a series of publicists uh, for her involvement in the case. She gave, as I said before, a number of media interviews, which gave her a prominent role during this story, the hashtag I believe Lucy became very popular on Twitter. And also from the decision, the judge says that she was very excited when the actor Mia Farrow tweeted her support. It's hard to separate the fact that she was an actor from the fact that she seemed to be very obviously excited to become an advocate in a public way about this particular issue. Does that alone go to the weight of her evidence? Like the fact that she had a publicist and the fact that she gave a lot of interviews? No, I think I don't think it does. These people have also heaped a lot of scorn on her since. I mean, her profile may have grown, but she was has been criticized and not just by people who support Gameshi or people who thought it was a witch hunt, whatever, but by people who criticized her because, because this trial was such a disaster, there's a lot of feminists who are really worried that this will discourage women. Like she's, people have been heaping scorn on Lucy since this. I don't. And I, I think it's like, I read a lot of articles that kind of tongue in cheekly, that kind of like tongue in cheekly suggest that some part of her is doing this for the attention. And I don't like us discussing that while we're discussing the evidence. I mean, I get that the, the judge points it out, right? But I think we should be criticizing that because you can want attention, but also have been like terribly abused. Like I also think two things could be true. Like maybe she is loving the attention, but that doesn't mean her story isn't true. Well, I think what's particularly, and I agree with you, but I think what's particularly troubling about the communications between her and the other complainants is that this idea that she's suggesting that she's 
a great actor and that the trial will be a theater in order for her to present a story in a particular way. I think for me that's troubling because it suggests that she's putting on a part that she that isn't truthful. So see, I don't read that from that quote necessarily. What do you, I how get do that you read that? And I, I t- theater at its best, I think like I can see that as her being excited to watch a tragic demise of somebody she hates because they did something terrible to her. Like I don't yeah. necessarily think that theater means it's a fiction, like that's something they're putting on. I think that trials are human dramas and this one's even more so how it unfolded with all this quote, su- not like surprise evidence that the crown wasn't ready for. But I don't necessarily think that she's talking about that. She's insinuating that she was playing the part of an actor there. Right. But when she says with my background, with my background, I literally feel like I was prepared to take this on. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I no, think like, I agree with you. But you get on the you. stand and you're telling a story. Like, that's, yeah, it is a performance. That doesn't mean it's, that doesn't mean it's not truthful. Like I don't disagree and Because you. any, any litigator will tell you that how, like, how, how your client is able to perform or how the witness is able to perform on the stand can matter a lot for their evidence. You know, people who are, like, shy or anxious, it's like, even if they're completely truthful, they might not come across as credible, right? Like, I don't know. I agree. I don't necessarily think it's like she's playing a part. I I don't know how to say this really, but like, I agree with you. Like the media coverage that she's getting and her prominent role in the media during this, this point isn't, isn't up for like that. That doesn't go to the credibility that it shouldn't go to the credibility during the trial. But if she's saying in private text messages that the the court courtroom is akin to a theater and she has a certain acting background, I do think if I'm a judge, that does make me question her sincerity in her testimony and her credibility that day on the stand. And I think that that's at least important context into understanding how the de- decision unfolded the way that it did and why the judge felt like he couldn't trust her. But I think it's like there's there's a there's a lot of little things that I just think continually eat away at her credibility. That um, I I so agree. Yeah, I just think that a lot of them, when you poke them, they still kind of fall. Like I just think that there's plausible deniability in all most of her little issues too. Totally, I think that the story that it builds requires an acquittal whether I like it or not. Mm-hmm. But I do like to, to kick the tires of all those little problems. So let's talk about the final complainant who's called SD in the decision. So her allegations were that while, quote, making out on a secluded park bench, Gomeshi squeezed her neck forcefully, causing discomfort discom- and interfering with her ability to breathe. I think maybe all we need to say is that it seems pretty obvious that the inability of the crown to bring similar fact evidence, which is where, which the crown can bring, they can bring an application to the court to admit certain evidence of prior, what they call prior discredible conduct. So 
if you can admit evidence that, you know, Gomeshi, this is part of his character. This is his, the way that he often chokes or hits women is something that he does habitually. So the problem in this case, the crown didn't even try to bring an application. And it, it seems almost, that almost certainly has to be because many of the, com- the, not just the three complainants, but many of the accusers were communicating with each other. Had the judge been able to consider this prior discreditable conduct, that might have, that evidence may have made it more likely that the court would convict. For SD, the main problem the court found with her testimony was that she omitted information about about her post-incident intimate contact with Gomeshi. She says she wasn't specifically asked about it, and that's why she didn't disclose that she actually gave him a hand job um, at some point after he assaulted her. More problematic was that she ultimately acknowledges that she left this out because she felt it didn't fit the pattern. She also said that she did not think what happened between them at her home qualified as sex. Is this a good time to talk about and maybe criticize a little bit the role that the post post incident contact played in this trial the the way that the court considered the interactions between gomeshi and the complainants yeah i think so i think that what's left out noticeably of the judge's decision was the position of authority and power that Gomeshi was in within the community and the fact that all of these women had some kind of connection to the entertainment industry um, or they met him through some kind of situation that was adjacent to the entertainment industry shouldn't be separated from the fact that these women all continued to contact him after their alleged assaults. It becomes especially problematic when people in power are the accused because obviously the victims have something, have an, a vested interest in potentially maintaining a relationship with them. And it's not so easy to just sever ties because it might be the case that their livelihood or their career is dependent on the reputation of this person in power. And it's not so simple as saying that they should just cut off contact. It might be more complicated than that. And that is something that I feel like the judge left out of his decision. I think that the fact that they either are relying on this person for career reasons or hoping to keep that that relationship positive for career reasons is certainly part of some of it. But I think that we know that even where that's not the case, it's very common for survivors to go back and have contact with their abusers. And I wanted to talk in this section about, you know the role of post-incident contact in this case and and why, in my opinion, I think the judge relied on that evidence too heavily. So should we talk a little bit about what some of the interactions were? So Linda Redgrave sent Gomeshi two emails following the assault. One was a video and another one was a photo of her in a bikini. And (laughs) Justice Horkins says, is very self-aware in criticizing this behavior of Leonard Redgrave, he says, the expectation of how a victim of abuse will or should be expected to behave must not be assessed on the basis of stereotypical models. Having said that, 
I have no hesitation in saying that the behavior of this complainant is, at the very least, odd. This characterization of post-incident behavior has been certainly criticized by at least the legal community. Elizabeth Sheehy, who teaches sexual assault law at the University of Ottawa, said, Women who have been assaulted by people they know act in ways that are often counterintuitive. She also says it's really important that judges start to understand there is no script. Some of the other post-incident contact that was really focused on was between Lucy J. Couture and Gomeshi. Supposedly, there were 22 emails, two Facebook posts, uh, and a handwritten letter from Lucy to Gomeshi that were before the court that Lucy hadn't produced to the police. She says she doesn't remember sending them. Um, And of course, in the letter, she concludes, I love your hands. And the judge finds this to be incredibly incongruent with uh, someone who recently claims to have been choked by the recipient's hands. Um, And that was, I think, also one of the reasons why he didn't buy into it. She also sent him flowers And the judge said, sending thank you flowers to the man who had just choked you may seem like odd behavior. I acknowledge that this might be part of her effort, as she says, to normalize the situation. However, whether or not this behavior should be considered unusual or not, again, it sounds like he's repeating Linda Redgrave's, the critique of Linda Redgrave, where he said this behavior is at least odd. In one email, she says, you kicked my ass last night and that makes me want to fuck your brains out. Other points, I think you are magic. It seemed like Lucy and Gomeshi had quite a bit post-incident contact and the judge was very, and that seemed to color a lot of his decision-making. On the topic of post-incident contact, Professor Julie McFarland, who's faculty at Windsor Law, says, we do not seem to have judges who really understand the dynamics of these situations. She says there is, quote, immediate confusion for victims after these incidents. She says, here you have someone who, until a few minutes ago, you really liked, and they have done something to you that you were not comfortable with. It is perfectly normal to later try and reach out and figure out if this was an aberration. The woman may ask, did I make this happen? Is it my fault? We've heard that from multiple people who have accused John Gameshi is that because he's so warm and charismatic and charming until the moment of the attack, it was just so jarring and shocking that they wondered if it wasn't just a one-off or an aberration. I also want to note that the way that post-incident contact is scrutinized in sexual assault is pretty unusual to the rest of criminal law. Like Anne Kingston in McLean's mentions how victims of sexual assault are interrogated in a way that's not the case in other when they are complainants of other types of crimes like theft, for example. Nobody asks a victim of theft what they were doing in that area, what they were wearing. If they spoke to the accused afterwards, they're they're not interrogated in the same type of way that women of sexual assault are. And of course there's a lot of a lot of obvious differences between the crimes and and in theft there's probably different types of evidence than than solely relying on the account of the complainants but at the same time you have to imagine that if that was the case in a theft they just they would not be treated in the same way as a victim of sexual assault again i just want to drive home that 
people who study sexual assault and work with sexual assault survivors will tell you that like post-incident contact between the abuser and the complainant is by no means rare and that it's very common that women do reach out or want to continue a relationship with someone who has abused him. I think that maybe we'll end this section with Lucy Descouter's own words where she says, this doesn't change the fact that Mr. Gomeshi assaulted me. Women can be assaulted by someone and still have positive feelings for them afterwards. That's why there are emotionally abusive relationships that continue. So can we transition to now talk about another commonly held myth about sexual assault and one of the other criticisms of the decision was that the judge relied on unreasonable standards of memory for the victims? So I found something from Jim Hopper, who's an expert on psychological trauma, including sexual assault and traumatic memories. And he wrote a piece in advance of Christine Blasey Ford's testimony before the U.S. Senate during the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing. He says, ignorance of how memory works is a major reason why sexual assault is the easiest violent crime to get away with across our country and around the world. And decades of research have shown that stress and trauma increase the differential storage, what he calls central details of memory over peripheral details. So he says, as memory researchers love to say, memory is not like a videotape. It's not like you are there and you remember everything like a movie in your mind. Sometimes other people or even movies will supply additional or, you know, even inaccurate details that are re-encoded into the overall memory and the abstract story. However, he's really clear to say that when you're talking about situations that are highly stressful or traumatic, the central details of those don't really fade over time. He says that certainly peripheral and less central details can get distorted a lot more easier than we realize. But the most central details are not easy to distort. And that's why people describe like things being burned into their brain, because those central ideas tend to have staying power. Now, if you're talking about a sexual assault, it's actually not unlikely that, say, somebody like Linda Redgrave remembers distinctly what um, the violence that Gomeshi, Sheila just Gomeshi did to her, but she may have learned after that he had a yellow beetle and then think about how that fits in with her own story of how she thought he was a, like a charming harmless guy and i'm sorry the car he drives seems to me to be nothing but a peripheral detail as hopper describes them right so i think there are certain things that like incongruous details in testimonies that might look like a smoking gun like a clear sign of lying or collusion that actually demonstrate a lot about what we know of how our memories actually work linda redgrave put it best when she says she did an interview with chatelaine after she had put her name to her allegations. And she says, I wish I had known that my memory above all would be on trial. People think you just go to the stand and tell the truth. It's not like that. Marie Hennon never once challenged my allegations. She did, however, challenge my memory with the collateral details, despite my repeating that my memories became clear as I sat with them. Also, because of the ways that assault and coercion exploit power and control thus undermining victim self-confidence and self-esteem. It makes a lot of sense that victims struggle to break off contact. And that's from Keitha Mercer, who's the manager of violence prevention at the Canada Women's Foundation. 
And this is a quote she gave to Chatelaine. And I think that that seems pretty poignant in this case where a lot of the allegations were that because he was like his personality, even when he wasn't abusing them, especially the ones that dated him and saw him repeat, he was so hot and cold. Like he would kind of be annoyed with you or angry and then so charming and just so wonderful to be around one other moment. I forget which complaint it is, but I, I read a profile. Some of the allegations talked about how he would, you know, criticize how they looked and their bodies and their clothes and that he was controlling a lot of these women, not just physically, but in other ways as well. And even if you're not I know that was something that certainly that Kevin Donovan struggles with, which I don't understand why in his book, he talks about them being worried about talk about explaining the post-incident contact because these women didn't live with Gomeshi. Well, you don't have to live with somebody to like have them exploiting and controlling you in a sense. Right. And mm-hmm. even if you're not fi- say financially reliant on somebody, you can still be really emotionally reliant on someone who's abusing you. I think also this highlights one of the biggest problems I think I personally have with this trial is that it felt a lot more that the credibilities of the witnesses were on trial as opposed to the actual allegations at hand of sexual assault. So on March 24th, 2016, the judge did acquit Gameshi of all five charges, mostly as a result of the things that we talked about in that the complainants weren't considered to be credible and as such the judge couldn't convict beyond a reasonable doubt so on may 11th 2016 was Catherine borrow's hearing in regards to the allegations that she had alleged against gameshi she alleges both sexual assaults and like a campaign of harassment by gameshi she says She accuses him of harassing her when she was a producer at Q. She claims that every day over the course of a three-year period, Gomeshi made it clear to her he could do anything he wanted to her and her body. And this is is all part of her statement at the peace bond hearing. She says there are at least three documented incidents of physical touching. He came up behind me while I was standing at my desk, put his hands on my hips, and rammed his pelvis against my backside over and over, simulating sexual intercourse. She says there were near daily verbal assaults and emotional manipulations. She came to the CBC with these allegations who essentially told her, what did you, what did you say, Liv? It was her job to, that it was her job to find this, to figure out what she could do to make this situation like workable for her, not their job to discipline Gomeshi. So the result was they entered into a peace bond for a year that essentially restrained him from contacting Borel in any way. He read an apology and he read a statement that didn't admit to any criminal liability. Essentially said that he was sorry to her and his mom. But that was mostly it. I think it was, I'll say it was probably deeply unsatisfying. But that's what happened for that count. So Liv, we've talked about the trial. We've talked about, you know, the other judicial proceedings, the peace bond hearing. Why don't we move on to talk about some of the women who chose not to use the justice system? Even before the complainants were all but eviscerated on the stand, 
there are other women who came forward with allegations in the media, but didn't go to police. One of these women is Reva Seth, who was a lawyer. So Reva Seth never went to the police. And in explaining why, she says, I was aware that I, as a woman who had a drink or two, shared a joint, had gone to his house willingly and had a sexual past, would be eviscerated. Cultural frameworks cultural frameworks on this are powerful. With Reva Seth, too, what I found really striking and what really resonated with me is that the sense of normalcy she describes about shitty treatment from men. Equally important, she says, however, was that I also didn't feel it was worth my effort. Most of my girlfriends had a story about an uncomfortable, sleazy, angry, or even scary encounter with a guy. No one really did anything other than avoid them and tell their girlfriends to stay away. And this is kind of how I wanted to talk about, you know, what we call the whisper network that women have, mostly women have long used to keep themselves and their friends apprised of who to watch out for, you know, maybe more than um, rather than consulting like formal institutions like the justice system. But what I wanted to talk about was like, maybe they deceived the court. Maybe they purposely omitted things that looked bad, but Anne Kingston, the way she describes it is like, it seems clear the complainants had entered a system they had been conditioned to fear and how they acted on those preconceptions proved to be damaging. They left these things out because they knew how they would be treated and they, they probably thought they could get away with it. I think the the one good clear example of that is with the hand draw because that seems to be like a, she directly omitted that as a result of like preconceived mm-hmm. notions. She also says... The complainant's plentiful, often conflicting statements to media and police allowed Hedden to pick away at inconsistencies and falsehoods to raise reasonable doubt. The problem here was was of the chicken-egg variety. The women had gone to media rather than police because problems in the prosecution of sexual assault are so well known. Since the beginning of the Gomeshi allegations, there were was lots of protest, mostly by women, like protesting Gameshi himself, I suppose. And then once he was acquitted, the protests kind of exploded. There was certainly a huge online movement with hashtags like been raped, never reported. There's been some response to the lack of education too. In 2015, uh, Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne launched a provincial sexual violence and harassment action plan with consent as its centerpiece. There was also some changes to the criminal code. It's hard to know how much of the impetus for these changes can be attributed to the Gomeshi trial. Certainly with the criminal code provisions, I mean, there had been lots of problems with sexual assault cases highlighted in the media. I think it was 2017, the Globe and Mail revealed that police forces have extraordinarily high rates of cases which are classi- which are classified unfounded there were quite a few high-profile sexual assault trials that raised concerns about, you know, how it just being too difficult to secure a conviction, uh, and as well as judges' knowledge of the law. This included a Calgary trial where the judge asked a complainant why she couldn't keep her knees together, and a Halifax trial where a judge found a taxi driver to be not guilty after having sex with a severely inebriated passenger, and then Gomeshi's trial. I mean, and certainly these examples did give rise to various programs that the various law uh, laws bar associations started in order to better educate their judges. But because these things keep happening, 
I think it leaves doubt in our mind of how effective these programs are and whether they're doing enough to ensure that judges are knowledgeable on the law and conduct their trials in a way that are not demeaning to the victims. The changes to the criminal code following this, as well as some of the treatment by the court already, and the concerns around the debate between how much these changes like adequately protect survivors versus how much they maybe affect the accused right to a fair trial, that in itself could be a, its own episode. So we won't detail all those changes here, but we just want to highlight that the public's response, the policy response were, you know, fairly significant. I guess all to say that people were very critical of this acquittal and this acquittal became a catalyst or a springboard for suggesting reform and also questioning, I think, that if the legal system is the appropriate venue for uh, retribution for these victims. I heard a lot of discussion about that, about if there's there are means outside of the criminal justice system t- to find resolution. And I think that that's an interesting open question too. Criticisms of the legal system's adequacy to deal with these kinds of issues also um, included the lack of, or sorry, the fact that the criminal justice system is necessarily adversarial in nature and therefore doesn't allow for the accused to express guilt in order to not confuse that with the truth of the events. And I thought that that was kind of interesting because that was something to some extent that we did see the criminal justice deal with, with Burrell's hearing. Burrell uh, forewent her trial in order to get the apology from Gameshi, although maybe unsatisfying, she did actually have an apology from him. I just think like the like even in this case, we see we see two different options that the criminal justice system provided to us, and it gives us a greater variety. And I think, and I think it's also important what what the victims want as a result, right? Like at the end of the day, do they want an apology? Do they want a conviction? All of those things have to get taken into account in order to pick the right revenue of of uh resolve also because at the end of the day it's about them right or it should be and we should try and craft a system which does that better and supports them yeah which is not you know the case right now as we know so he hasn't completely gone away he's certainly been (laughs) disgraced yeah but He's made some comeback attempts. Probably the most recent and most public was in 2018, where the New York Review of Books, who didn't seem to understand what had happened and and clearly didn't know because what they published was largely inaccurate that he wrote. But his essay was called Reflections from a Hashtag, and it was under the cover line, The Fall of Men. Boo-hoo. Supposedly, Ian Baruma, who commissioned and edited it, didn't know basic facts about the Gameshi story. If you're interested in this, don't have to give him attention by reading his story online. But Canada Land did a good overview and went through and highlighted, took parts of the essay and highlighted how it was inaccurate or, or, you know, 
at the very least a pretty gross mischaracterization, if not an outright lie. I don't know if he's going to stay down forever, but his attempt to return was not very well received. Until he properly apologizes, until he accepts some responsibility for his actions, I think it's difficult to imagine that that people will bring him back into society. And I think that that's, I think that that's fair. And I think that I'm on board with that. Not to give like legal, legal advice, but I also don't think he can really apologize because he, well, I mean, I'm sure he can generally apologize, but any genuine apology would probably not be a great move for him, given that, you know, there's still 19 of the 23 women who have never pressed charges, right? Or never gone to police. So he also could be charged with any of these other potentially potential counts of sexual assault or assault. I guess mostly sexual assault because there's no statute of limitations at any time. So he also like can't really apologize and, um, you know, make good with society because, well, maybe he can, but I, I'm sure his lawyer would probably tell him not to. (laughs) This is how we end every story. There's some pros, yeah. there's some cons. Well, I think the pro is that, not that we want to view the, wor- the world and the binaries of just good and bad, but they certainly prompted a national conversation on sexual assault and sexual assault yeah. criminal justice trials. All of this happened before we had very familiar scripts on how to deal with this kind of thing in terms of like how the CBC should have dealt with it, how his own PR response, how the crown deals with it. Like this was, we also forget that this is such an early case in this era. I mean, this is, this is pre the Hollywood Hollywood's reckoning and Hollywood's me too. Of course we know the me too movement began in 2006 with Toronto Burke, but the Hollywood version that we tend to think of, which is probably at least began or where the focal point is probably the Weinstein case right this is all pre that before we have these scripts and in terms of the way that they were investigated like you look at some of the like if you read like Kevin Donovan's book like the way that that was carried out and you know kind of the disagreements between him and Jesse Brown and the investigation all that has been I think reporters in Canada and the United States have gotten better at Um, investigating sexual assault allegations and reporting on them. I think the public has also become more educated about, I hope, sexual assault and how survivors maybe act post-sexual assault. And I think that we've spent some, hopefully spent some more time than we, at least than we were in the before times, you know, questioning the mythology we've built around how complainants are supposed to act and that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. I guess everything's better now, right? (laughs) That's my point. (laughs) Definitely not. I think I agree with you. I think that there, there's a lot of people who learned from this, but I think that also like people who are less media literate did look at this trial and did say, you know, these women, they weren't credible. And that was the end of the conversation. And so I think that, I mean, Hopefully this podcast will cause people to to reconsider those biases. I think maybe if you had only followed the trial 
and you weren't as interested in the media story and the invest in the star investigation, you might not know that there are 23 accusers. You might think that there are the three women the court heard from during the criminal trial, or maybe the four, if you know about Catherine Borrell. But I think that Canada loves a trial. Canada loves. Canada does love a trial. Canada loves true crime and when, you know, real crime looks like true crime. And I think that there's probably a lot of the public that only really paid attention to the trial bit. And when I also think that the public has a mistaken understanding that acquittal means they didn't do it, which, as we know, the crown's burden is very, very high. And if they don't meet it, defense has to sit there and do nothing because it's crown's case to prove. Right. The defense has Mm -hmm. nothing to prove. Right, that's the imbalance that we're working with. Thanks. I think we're good. See you next week. (laughs) At Parker, our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.